today's guest is Erin Wood. She is the publisher of Et Alia Press. I will have links to everything in the show notes. You definitely need to go check out her website so that you can see all the books she has published. Uh, there are some great ones, and we discuss several of them in the show. Um, I, gosh, I met Erin years ago. I'm not sure exactly when it was, but I just know from the moment I met her, I was just really drawn to her. She's beautiful and smart and funny, and I don't get to see her enough. In fact, we probably, maybe we see each other once or twice a year. And I was listening to our conversation again as I edited and just, I just, I'll tell you, one of the greatest joys of my life is getting to talk to people and meet people. Everyone really does have a story. And I am fascinated by errands. I think it's just really interesting. And you'll hear more about her early life, but uh, you'll also hear my little dog Peanut clicking through. He, when I do interviews at the house, he'll always come through and you can hear his little toenails clicking on the floor. So sorry about that. And then we discussed a local author, Garrett Conley, and neither of us knew how to pronounce his name, but I have it on good authority that it's pronounced Garrett. So I'm sorry that we... Uh, mispronounced it multiple times in the show, but he is the author of Boy Erased, which was just recently made into a movie. So anyway, you'll hear us talk about that. And then Erin also talks about how to be a freelance writer. She gives great advice to authors. She talks about um, how publishing works, especially for small publishing houses, and that where you buy books matters. I am very guilty of shopping on the evil empire Amazon because it's so convenient and it's always, almost always less expensive to buy on Amazon. But now that I understand more how it works, I'm going to make a concerted effort to buy books directly from the publisher. So when you buy all of Aaron's books, which you should, please buy them from her at, at Alia Press. Um, and we talk about our favorite authors. Can't wait to share them with you. Uh, I will stop talking right now. I really just enjoyed this conversation as I do all my conversations for Uppity Women. But uh, please support your local authors, your local publisher. And oh, I can hear it. There's a storm in the background. Finally, it's been very dry. So I'm going to drink some wine, enjoy the storm and uh, enjoy the rest of my Sunday. So I hope you all enjoy this show. Uh, again, please, all the links are in the show notes. So follow them, buy books. From your local publishers. So I'm Erin Wood and I grew up in Hot Springs and I have lived in Little Rock now I guess for 13 or 14 years um, but in between there um, went to high school in Massachusetts. I went to boarding school, which is pretty unusual for the South. In fact, I was out to dinner with a friend from college last night and, and she went to boarding school too. And we were talking about how, you know, high, not that high school comes up very commonly in conversations as, you know, as you pass your forties, it's a little bit in the rearview mirror, but, um, but that was definitely a really unusual informative experience for me. Um, why did you, why did your parents send you to boarding school? I think, um, and, and that's a common thing too, you know, people say, why do your parents send you or, you know, um, when it's kind of not part of, of people's experience, but, uh, I think it was something that I really wanted to do. I was always, I mean, I think from when I was seven, eight, nine, I always wanted to do the full time of camp. You know, I wanted to go away for a month. I wanted to, um, 
kind of do whatever adventure came along. Um, but my parents were divorced and I was kind of ping ponging back and forth between my parents. Um, and I was in a good public school, but I think it was just becoming clear that, um, if I wasn't pushed or wasn't pushing myself that, you know, I was going to kind of become content to just get by Mm -hmm. and did you recognize that at the time I think so Hmm. I think I did I mean it's easy to look back on it and and imagine that right I did see that but you know who knows really I mean also part of it was that I loved riding horses and I rode horses like six days a week and I competed and everything so I wanted to go um you know I wanted to uh be able to ride more and um kind of do a little bit more with that. So that was part of it. But I think that I had a sense that I wanted my identity to be separate from my family. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would have been able to describe it at that point, but I think that I wanted to kind of, there was a drive to be on my own, Mm -hmm. whatever that looked like. So it really shaped my writing a lot. I was writing longer papers, just more intense critiques, um, I think, than I would have had if if I would have stayed at home. And it made college, you know, I was already used to living in a dorm. I was used to sort of communal living. Um, and so it made college uh, a lot, I don't know if I want to say easier, but I, I feel like I could um, engage with it in a different way because I already had all those other parts of the, you know, that transition Mm -hmm. hammered out. So then I went uh, to college in North Carolina. What school? I went to Duke University and loved it there. Absolutely loved it. Uh, I was an English major and a psychology minor, and I probably would have double majored in psychology, except that I've never, I mean, just I see numbers and my brain just shorts mm-hmm. out. And so when it came time to do statistics, I was not interested in that yeah. at all. But I loved abnormal psychology, um, just really enjoyed my psychology classes. And Duke has a primate center. And so I love the biological anthropology and, and anatomy classes. And we could actually go to the primate center and see um, lemurs. They had quite a variety of lemurs there and so that was really fun and interesting and I continued to ride horses um, during college and I would get um, a horse and kind of train it up and then sell it and so that was a nice income stream Mm -hmm. I guess so I kind of came to the end of college and I had a lot of pressure in terms of what you know what what was going to happen next and and I had always kind of thought through my junior year of college that I would go to grad school for English and you know maybe I would be an English professor although I didn't really see myself doing that necessarily but I just didn't really know how to fit the life that I wanted to make I mean I I was only seeing um, careers that had very clear paths or labels. Um, I wasn't, you know, 
it just wasn't clear to me exactly what it was that I wanted to do. Um, then I had a Shakespeare professor and she, uh, I just really admired her. She went to law school and she, um, specialized in Renaissance law, I guess. And she did a lot of historic, historical research on that period. And, um, she combined that with her PhD in English. And so that was her, you know, Shakespeare and Renaissance law were kind of her special, um, things. And I took a class called Renaissance selves. And so how did people define themselves in the Renaissance? And that was pretty fascinating. And, um, so I thought, well, maybe there's some way for me to go to law school and combine it with my English degree. I don't really know what that would look like. Um, so I moved to Atlanta. I, wanted, I knew I wanted to take a couple of years off and work. Um, and so I did that. I worked for a huge firm that um, King and Spalding, they have like 400 attorneys just in the Atlanta office. And wow. so I was a document clerk. So I just made copies, put together exhibits. Um, but it was all these huge cases that were settling for like $90 million, you know, just big employment cases. Um, and so that was a neat experience. Then I worked for a uh, smaller boutique construction law firm. Then I applied to law school and I wanted to stay in Atlanta. And I guess somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that maybe I wouldn't want to continue practicing law forever. And so I had seen um, when I worked at King and Spalding, one of my kind of mentors there that I just really looked up to. She had gone to Harvard undergrad and Harvard for law school. And um, her husband was an engineer and um, he had kind of a similar uh, expensive education. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you know, I I can't leave this job because I have to make, you know, at least $150,000 a year. I'm never going to be able to pay off these loans. Mm -hmm. And so I'm stuck, you know, so she was stuck in this, in this really high pressure job. Um, and I just thought I'd, do not want to do that. Mm -hmm. I really don't want to do that. And so uh, I went to Georgia State, which was an awesome law school, and um, and I paid it as I went. I worked some in um, my third year of law school. I actually uh, I saw one of my really good friends from law school recently, and she was like, you know, I just I still can't believe you did that. So I would. Uh, I would buy things from TJ Maxx and I would sell them on eBay. This was like in the heyday yes. of eBay. And if they didn't sell, you know, I would have a small fee, but I would just return them to TJ Maxx. So I wasn't really losing very much. But if I did sell them, then I could make a decent profit. And that's how I paid for my third year of wow. law school. Um, so, you know, I kind of patched things together and I didn't come... I, I think I maybe had a little bit more to pay off when I left, but I, you know, it was, it was very reasonably priced. And so I came out, you know, relatively debt free and I worked for that boutique construction firm. It was at a time where people were really nervous that they weren't going to be able to get jobs mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the market was just flooded with too many lawyers at the moment. And what year was so this? that was 2005. Okay. 
so they offered me a great salary and I was and so I went to work there and I was the only woman there were 17 men um, and me in the in the you know law firm and uh, of course, construction is kind of a male-dominated mm-hmm. field, too. Um, I really had a great experience with with all the men that I worked with, but there were some moments of, you know, walking into the room with a partner to talk to a client and kind of some assumptions that I was a secretary mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, uh, but really, overall, it was it was a, a good experience. And I had done that for about uh, a year and a half. I'd practiced law and then my dad had a heart attack and he was 58 and he lived in Hot Springs. And it was just a moment where I thought, you know, what if I only had 30 more years Mm -hmm. to live? Is, am I doing what I really want to do? And I had never stopped wanting to write. And I had kind of been working on a novel, but just only halfway. Mm-hmm. And I just really looked at my life and looked looked at it and thought about everything. And, and I decided that I wanted to move back to Arkansas and that I would go to grad school and, um, you know, see what kind of life I could, uh, what kind of writing life I could bring together. You know, I, I couldn't have imagined then that I would end up in publishing, but now I use my law degree to do contracts and photo releases, and it's definitely something that I rely on and wouldn't be able to, it would be really hard to run a small press and afford to pay an attorney. So I'm really thankful that I can do that and I'm able to use I my skills in editing that I've, I mean, even in high school, all my friends would come to me with their papers and I would mm-hmm. help develop them without really understanding that what I was doing was editing, but various literary magazines and things like that, that I, that I did over the years. So, you know, I have always loved to edit. So I've have found a way to do that and um, to write as well. So I just finally, all of these things have come together. So I'm going to just tell one quick story. So when I was in my first year of law school, there was a guy who, and he dropped out after the first year, he just hated law school, but he uh, asked for me to help him with a paper. So I just kind of went through and did some editing. No, no, nothing substantive, just kind of, you know, grammar and kind of move some things around a little bit. And he got a better grade than I did. And I was so mad about that. I was like, but, but of course there was this honor system and we weren't supposed to help each other at all with anything. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I wasn't going to go complain anyway, but I was like, well, okay. <laughs> This is just not fair. Well, and and that makes you realize how important the editing pro, I mean, not to, you know, I, I use an editor too. When I do my own creative writing, I have several different editors that I work with because I think even as a writer and an editor, you need an independent person to yeah. guide you and direct you and make sure that the expression that you think you're making is you know, an accurate reflection of what the reader Mm -hmm. is experiencing. Um, And yeah, that, I mean, 
that can happen. I think when you have, it's, it's such a trust relationship. And when you have a really good, uh, working relationship between a writer and an editor, it can just make the writing be everything that the, that the writer wants it to be, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, and he certainly wanted that good grade and it sounds like he got it. <laughs> and then the fucker dropped out of school. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, everyone needs an editor for sure. And Jason got for me a book called On Writing by John McPhee, mm-hmm. uh, who, I'm assuming he's still alive. I don't know, but he was, uh, he's written, he writes nonfiction. And well, one of the things that I really loved that he wrote was when you're looking for words to use, because if you, you know, often you'll see the same word used over and over and I'm not, I'm struggling to come up with an example, but he says, just go to the dictionary, look up the word. You're often going to find another descriptive word you can use in place of that. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was so brilliant. I was like, yeah. And so anyway, so that's, I don't do a whole lot of creative writing or or writing generally, but um, I thought that was just a really good tip. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I feel like the thesaurus is a really good friend of mine. And um, I think just to have a curiosity about words um, Mm -hmm. and to see what other words are related to that word and you know you may end up in in a you know in a place that you didn't realize you were going and I think that's really exciting of course it's super dorky but um but that's a to me language is just so fascinating agreed agreed I used to say that I wanted to be a lexicographer I really didn't because that's just too, I'm not, I'm not a real detailed person. Um, and I don't like a whole lot of research. Um, but I just love words. I always have, uh, I took Latin in ninth grade and was just, I was like, what? I mean, there are roots to, you know, or I guess origins, you know, to, to our language. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's just always been really fascinating to me. So yeah, if you haven't read John McPhee and if you like nonfiction, you need to read him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, um, I haven't read this one yet, but like he'll write, um, a, a, a whole long essay on oranges and you're like, well, I don't really care that much about oranges, but it's the most fascinating thing you've ever read. I mean, he just has a way of writing that is just, that it just sucks you in. Like his first book I read was on the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, I've not read anything more fascinating. So you should definitely check him out. Yeah. So who are some of your favorite authors? Um, I love the, the poet Sharon Olds. She was the poet laureate of the United States and she has a very raw, physical, visceral, descriptive style. And she's not afraid to go in talking about illness and in talking about difficult moments. She has a, um, one of her collections is, it's something about father, um, but it's, it's poems about when her father was dying. And, you know, there's one image that just really stands out in my mind. He kept coughing and coughing and he had a cup that he would spit into. And just the way that she described the spit sitting on the table I and mean, it's so horrifying, but, um, very beautiful at the same time. And I think that especially as a female writer, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, maybe male writers have this experience too, but anyway, as, as, as a female writer, I think, um, 
I was always a little bit afraid that things had to be described in a pretty way mm. to be read and enjoyed by others. Not that when I write now as a little bit more mature writer, I I don't think about that as much. But when I was in high school and in college, um, I just didn't really dare to go to those places. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Sharon Olds kind of gave me permission to do that. She has a poem called I Go Back to May 1937. That's probably one of her more famous ones. And she imagines going back to the moment where her parents met and she wants to shake them and she wants to say don't do it she's the wrong woman he's the wrong man you will do terrible things to children but she realizes that if it were not for that moment that she wouldn't be and that I heard her read that probably 10 years ago or so at a conference that I go to, a writing conference that I go to every year in New York. And it had meant so much to me because that really, for me, resonated with my experience of of my parents um, who divorced when I was five. And uh, it was one of those moments hearing her read it where I felt like it was just me, Mm -hmm. even though there was a huge crowd around me. It was Mm -hmm. like, you know, somewhere the universe knew that I had, you know, spent this time and read this poem and it had meant so much to me and here I am in the room with her and I'm getting to hear it and I was just like ah, a flood of tears Um, but so she is uh, someone that I have really admired since grad school a grad school professor read me actually that poem and that kind of started me on um, just being a fan of her work and I, I don't really write a lot of poetry anymore but I would say that my um, essay style is like a lyric essay mm-hmm. so it has kind of poetic elements and I tend to revise, revise, revise obsessively and make things very dense so some people tell me that it you know reads more like a poem mm-hmm. um, also uh, Dorothy Allison is incredible and she um her book, her pretty short book, um, Two or Three Things I Know For Sure, is about her family. Um, she grew up very poor, and the strong women and the headstrong men and the um, bashing of heads that went, that went on um, abuse and she talked about it all very openly and I came across that book when I was maybe a junior in high school and people talk a lot about what is a Southern writer. And I think the Oxford American magazine has really expanded our view of what a Southern writer is. And of course, not just one thing, but, but going to a boarding school in the North and coming across her book, it just um, really transformed what I thought of as a a Southern writer, because before that, you know, of course, William Faulkner, I mean, we Mm -hmm. have, there's a a long list of, of male writers that, um, are typically studied in school or listed as, um, 
as Southern writers. And I, and I think that's changed a lot. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, 1994 here. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that that's changed to be much more inclusive of uh, women, people of color. I do think that that's expanded a lot. But at that point, it was very, um, to come across her work was very important to me. And, and she also wrote Bastard Out of Carolina, mm-hmm. which was made into a movie and Cave Dwellers. And, um, and she's been here at the Arkansas Literary Festival Um I've probably read that book two or three things I know for sure, maybe 10 or 15 times. And when she read from it at the literary festival, she read it differently. And I just loved that because it made me realize, I mean, this book has, I I don't know what year it was published, maybe in the early nineties or something, but even decades later, a writer who is well established wants to change a little something. And I feel like that's really, it's exciting as a reader and it's also very encouraging as a writer because it's not really, you know, sometimes you get scared because it's fixed Mm -hmm. and once it's out there, it's done and you can't, you know, you can't change it and that can feel threatening. But Mm -hmm. the idea that it's not really ever done and the person that, that you were, you know, 20 years ago might look a little bit different in this reading. And so I really appreciate that she, um, that she shared something different in that way. I like that. I'm going back to when I was in uh, school for journalism and it was such a scary thing to like actually say, okay, here, take it and publish it. And I mean, I've, I've always had deep insecurities about everything. So that, you know, to, to, <laughs> to be judged by others was, was hard. But um, so I like that idea that it can be changed, especially something that's so impactful to you that you probably thought of as perfect mm-hmm. because you related to it so much or, or you loved it so much. And then to hear her read it differently, mm-hmm. that must be an interesting experience. So as you're talking, um, I'm thinking about your interest in psychology and anthropology writing, and I am just intrigued by the human condition. And I had a fairly tumultuous childhood. And I think I've always wanted to understand people and why they do things, um, uh, mostly why people hurt each other. And and when you were talking about Sharon Olds and how kind of raw she is, I really, really appreciate writers who don't sugarcoat things or who don't kind of flower it up because to me, like I hate the happy Hollywood ending because to me, I always think, well, that's not real life. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not how it works, you know? So there's something that really draws me to the raw, the emotional, the really painful truths that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to definitely, I, I know I read Bastard Out of Carolina and I've heard of the two or three things I know for sure, mm-hmm. but I don't think I've read it. And then, um, but I'm definitely going to look up Sharon Olds. One of my favorite authors is Mary Carr. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I've liked about her writing was it felt so authentic, mm-hmm. you know, like I could really, uh, the liars club, I could really hear her voice. You know, I could, I could play the movie as I read, you yeah. know, and, and I really, yeah. And you can tell from a writer when they're not hiding from themselves, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, you can, um, you get that Mm -hmm. from a good writer that they are 
that they're, you know, even if they're, say, for example, sharing the truth of their family and their childhood, they're they're examining that um, by by looking at at themselves and who they are too. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of amazes me when people, uh, when when certain writers are able to have compassion for. Um, for their family situations. Mm-hmm. Like I think of, um, I think it's Gerard. I, I'm not sure if it's Gerard or Gerard. I should know, but, um, uh, Conley, his book is the, um, oh. erased. And I was just, I, I don't, I just, feel like and maybe sometimes things are still raw and you're not you know you're you really haven't overcome the or I don't know if overcome the trauma but you haven't worked through certain Mm -hmm. aspects of a trauma then it's it's hard to not be one-dimensional about it but his parents uh sent him to uh pray the gay away um kind of place and I just he had so much compassion for them and really worked hard to try to understand like you were talking about why is it that they that they hurt him in this way and of course it wasn't about hurting him it was about their you know it was about them and, mm-hmm. and their own issues and um problems and um their own understanding of the world flawed as flawed as it as it was I guess or is I think now he's he is very close with his mom and she's since you know apologized and changed you know they've they've worked through that together but um anyway I think that uh that you can you can really sense authenticity in a writer and that's what makes the writing good when they have done done the work to to really inspect themselves closely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Gerard or, or Gerard, G- Gerard, whatever his name is, Conley, he's from Arkansas. Yes, yeah. he is. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to back up a little bit more. And, um, and if there's anything you don't want to talk about, that's fine. But wanting to go, so I'm trying to kind of put you wanting to be out in the world and kind of on your own. And I always wanted out. I mean, when I was a kid, I was like, just lo- I'm 12 now. Let me go. I, I can handle this, you know, because <laughs> I just didn't want to, you know, I had no control and I, you know, so I just needed to be able to, um, well, I guess have, have control of my own life, I suppose. But so you want to go do your thing, but then you end up back home. And so that is curious to me. And do you think about that? And I'm glad you're back in Arkansas. I want everyone to go do their thing, but then come back to Arkansas because we need to be here, right? I mean, Arkansas needs needs you. But do you ever, I don't know, I don't like to say regret, but um, are you where you thought you would be or are you where you want to be? I'm not where I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. I never thought I would, I mean, from ninth grade, I thought I would never live in Arkansas again. But yeah, somehow I am exactly where I want to be. I can't imagine. I like to get away. I like to go and travel and do other things. But it does feel like home to me. Mm-hmm. I never really expected that. And maybe it was my father's death. Maybe um, 
it has been, I'm not sure I felt quite as fixed in here maybe eight or nine years ago, but I think I feel, especially in the last couple of years, and I think because of Adalia Press and just connecting with so many writers and a literary community and um, really wanting to help share the stories of Arkansas that might not always be looked at and just really appreciating all of the creative people here and the art and the museums. I mean, I know the Momentary Museum is opening in Northwest Arkansas and of course Crystal Bridges and the Art Center is being redone here in Little Rock and uh, there's just so much. And I lived in Atlanta for eight years and I lived uh, 12 miles from my building and it took me an hour each way. And on the weekends to go to the grocery store, you're 45 minutes getting to the grocery store and 45 minutes getting back, you know, maybe, or if you wanted to go somewhere that was slightly out of your neighborhood and you might have friends that live across town and it might not be worth it to go see them because it was just too much. Right. And so I feel like that's one thing I really value is that I don't have to you know, they say everything in Little Rock is 10 minutes away, I guess. It's just, it's nice to not have time just, you know, sitting in the car as a, as a factor every day. Now that said, I have completely the opposite life as my husband because I do work from home and he spends a minimum of an hour and a half in, uh, in the car every day. And so he drives to Sheridan, he drives to Bearden, he drives to Arkadelphia. And so, um, you know, I feel kind of a little guilty about that sometimes, but I also wish that I had more time to, you know, listen to great podcasts mm-hmm. and, uh, and listen to more music. I mean, I feel like there's certain aspects of my life that have traditionally happened in the car that I don't really, you know, they've kind of fa- they've kind of fallen aside, mm-hmm. and so I I do kind of miss the theater of the car yeah. a little bit or phone conversations because I just I don't really talk on the phone mm-hmm. very much anymore, yeah. um, and it seems like with a small child and with you know, running my own business and, um, all the things of life. It just, the time for those hour, hour and a half conversations just isn't there. Mm -hmm. So maybe if I were in the car more, it would be, but it is one thing that I, that I just love about Little Rock is how, how kind of easy it is Mm -hmm. and how the things that were very much a planning part of my day in Atlanta are not part of my life Mm -hmm. at all in in Little Rock. But yeah, there's something that that very much feels like home. I grew up on the lake and I just I love seeing mountains. I love seeing water. And I think some part of feeling like home is your natural surroundings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I definitely appreciate having that here. So yeah. 
well, I've never planned to stay in Arkansas, and here I am 22 years later. And it took me about 15 years to to be content to be in Arkansas. But it's for all the same reasons you've just talked about. Um, the people, the creativity, the, you know, Little Rock has changed so much in the last decade. Mm-hmm. So we've got the Airbnb apartments, and I found myself when I was writing the descriptions of all the different things, I was like, wow, we have a lot going on we have here. A lot. Yeah, and yes. a lot right in this neighborhood. Absolutely. You know? so it's really cool, and I love Crystal Bridges. I can't wait for the Art Center to reopen. Mm-hmm. Um, They're not closed. Let me... I interviewed the children's theater gals and they said we are not closing they're (laughs) in the place where some were hoping that a trader joe's would (laughs) go at one point i think there's a rumor about that but yeah Yeah. they're there and opened and it's just um it's really nice that they're you know still still making it yeah, and I, interim. Jason and I talk about the fact that we're three blocks from the art center and we never go there, but we always make a point to go to Crystal Bridges if we're in Northwest Arkansas. And it's like, what is you know what is wrong with us? But we're we're trying to be tourists in our own our own town. But yeah, Little Rock is beautiful. Um, we were just in Denver, and you know I'm I grew up in the mountains, and so I'm it gives me such a strong sense of place. And did you grow up? Um, the Black Hills, yeah, primarily, but uh-huh. lived in North and South Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado, and. Uh, uh, yeah, so um, I mean, I moved to Arkansas from Aspen, if you can imagine. So <laughs> anyway, which is not a real—that's not real life. Aspen is not real life. It was fantastic, though. So just being in Denver, and you know, we had dinner with some friends there, and you know, I was like, yeah, but it's so cheap and easy in Arkansas. You know, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned it being easy. Or if I go back to New York now, I moved there when I was 18 and it was fantastic because it was, you know, I was young and partying and like, it, you know, it was just the most amazing electric place. But now I go back, I'm like, oh my God, this is exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, I do not want to live here. And everyone I know there looks much older than I do and we're the same age because yeah. I think it's because it's harder to live there. Yeah. You know, so it's, um, Arkansas is a wonderful place. It's, uh, you know, I still feel like a fish out of water at times, you know, especially politically and I'm not religious and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, feminist and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I'm in my Little Rock bubble. Mm-hmm. Whenever I get out of Little Rock is kind of when I notice it more but but it is a it's a wonderful place mm-hmm. and I like that there are people like you or even us getting to show Airbnb guests you know that it's it's a destination I mean it's mm-hmm. a it's a it is a wonderful place and it's not the stereotypical south we all imagine of yeah. course every place has a little bit of that you know yeah. but um there's a lot more to it it's a lot more uh complicated is not the right word uh it's more um there's more to it, I guess, yeah. is, is what I'm really trying to well, say. Well, when I, the older I've gotten, I've started to realize it's like, you know, it's like being in a, it's like being in any relationship. It's mm-hmm. a relationship with the place that you live. And sometimes you get really mad at it mm-hmm. and you really, you know, are disgusted by, at yourself by staying with it. And then yeah. sometimes you're proud of it and, and you, um, you love it and you think it's wonderful. Wonderful, and you don't know how you were ever disgusted, and then it, you know, it turns around, and sometimes you just feel tepid, and you're mm-hmm. just going, you know, going through the day. But, um, but I think that it, uh, it's definitely something that that I look at more and more that way as I as I age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So when you move back to Arkansas. 
when I met you, I think you were teaching at UALR. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Maybe I had either I was done with grad school or I was. I think it was finishing. right on the cusp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you went to grad school at UALR. Mm-hmm. Okay. I did. I got my master's in professional and technical writing. And then you taught there for a few years. And I taught there for maybe I think it was a total of about three and a half years, but I can't remember. Maybe a year of that was while I was in, in grad school, or maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. And then t- talk to me about the evolution of Vedalia Press. How did that start? Why did you decide you wanted to publish? Just tell me about that journey. Yeah, so I didn't really know anything about it, frankly, other than, um, you know, taking a couple of related classes in grad school. And so one of my professors in my thesis chair uh, approached me and he said that he and another professor from um, Missouri State were talking about starting a press and would I like to join them? And so I just, I don't know, it it seemed like exciting, but kind of strange too, because I really had no idea what anything about the world of publishing. Um, well, what did you think you were going to do? You know, it's, it's interesting because I had always had a plan for my life. I mm-hmm. always knew what the next step was. Mm-hmm. And when I was finishing up grad school, it was like, okay, I've left practicing law to be a writer. So now it's time to be a writer, but writers don't make any money. So, which I knew all along, which was kind of why, you know, going back to um, when I was in college and I was very strongly um, influenced by that professor, but I talked about pressure that I was feeling. And so, and I didn't kind of complete that thought, but the, but the pressure was from family members and from the person that I was dating at the time, like, how is this going to you know, you're not going to make any money doing this. And and part of that is, I mean, I think a good parent wants their child to be, mm-hmm. to be able to sustain themselves financially. And so, you know, so I, that did play a lot into me thinking, okay, yeah, I'm just, I'm putting this aside because, because I can't do that. So, um, so when I was finishing up grad school, my plan was to just kind of, I, I was working, uh, I was the managing editor of an academic journal called Literature and Medicine, which was here then, and now it's at Northwestern University. Um, so I was doing that part-time, and then I had taken a grant writing class, and so I got a freelance grant writing gig. Um, but basically, I didn't really know because the life ahead wasn't doing one thing. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly we're leading up to that. And I guess I was, when I finished, maybe I was 30. I think every other job that I'd had, it was like one job and you do that one job. And so suddenly I was looking at cobbling together a lot of different things. And that felt scary. I didn't really, I didn't really know you know, how that was going to, how that was going to work out. Um, and when I was the managing editor, I did have to go into, uh, an office, but mostly I started at that point working from home and 
I got one client that I still, I don't write a whole lot for them anymore, but it's a foundation. And so I started doing foundation writing work and little by little different things came in. And I just, I never, I don't know, magically, I just word of mouth and whatever. I just, I never really had a hard time getting freelance work. And I have a lot of um, people ask me, you know, how do you start a freelance writing business? And I don't, always have the best advice, but I think just being reliable and doing what you say that you're going to do and doing your best because I, everybody's going to screw it up sometimes, but, you know, admitting that you've maybe not done the right thing and doing your best to to fix the situation and um, do what's fair to everyone. I mean, those seem very basic, but I think that's it. I mean, once people, and, and now we live in a world where most people, I mean, maybe the older generations are not quite there yet, but most people don't feel that you have to be in an office to mm -hmm. be legitimate, mm -hmm. um, that you can, you know, your works will speak for itself. But about that time, maybe I was out of, grad school for a year or so that was when my professor um approached me about starting at alia so i did all of the kind of startup you know stuff and got the ball rolling and incorporated and you know did that kind of kind of thing but for a long time it was um you know, they were both academics and I was still, I was teaching uh, composition and like I said, cobbling together other things. So it was very much a side, a sideshow. And it kind of rolled along that way for a few years. Then I really, I just loved it so much. I loved editing books and I just I wanted to spend more time doing it and it wasn't at first it wasn't going to have a focus just on Arkansas but I started realizing that with only if you're only going to do two or three books a year then why not I mean you need to have a niche as mm -hmm. a as a small press um and something that you're kind of known for and so it just made complete sense to me to focus on Arkansas and just really strengthen connections around the state and try to tell stories and um of people that are of Arkansans and um help Arkansans tell their stories I guess so about a year and a half ago um well I, I should say so about three years ago it you know started picking up steam and I really wanted to focus on it I just I wanted to do it and I got the website um moved over to Squarespace where I could it was on WordPress which to me was a complete nightmare mm -hmm. and I'm not technical you know at all so once it migrated to Squarespace, that made it so easy to just do things quickly on my own, not, you know, have to pay someone else to do it. And I saw with certain books that it was just, it was just feeling really good, mm -hmm. but I felt like I wanted to devote more time to it than my partners did. And so I just kind of, thought about it for maybe about a year. And finally, I asked that, you know, could I take this over on my own and take it from here? And so they discussed and finally, we decided to break up, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so 
since I guess it was January of 2018, I've been doing it all on my own. Well, I shouldn't say all on my own because it's really with the help of um, Amy, who's the uh, Amy Ashford. She's the designer of most of the books and she lives in Baton Rouge, but we just work really well together. I mean, I think we both bring out each other's strengths. And then I usually have an intern or two. Last fall, I had three and I kept them all busy, which made me realize how much work I had been doing on my own. But you know, when you're, as you well know, when you're when you have your own small business, you're doing everything. everything. I mean, I've, I do the social media. Twitter is extremely weak. So I usually try to get an intern to do that Mm -hmm. because it's not my favorite, but, um, packaging and shipping books, uh, answering questions, reading queries from authors who are submitting, um, you know, managing all the stages of the, the production process and writing the contracts for new authors and just um, having booths and selling books and going to conferences and, you know, to whatever, whatever it takes, I'm kind of doing it all. But it feels it feels really good to have it be just mine and mm-hmm. I can do what I want with it. And, and a lot of times that's making a mistake. I mean, I've, I've had a book where we actually ended up, you know, basically paying people to take it. It's like, okay, this is not, you know, it wasn't priced well. I mean, I've, I've made a lot of dumb mistakes along the way. Um, well, what do you mean by you, you mispriced it, but what was it about the book that wasn't working? Was it the book itself? So basically there's, uh, at all is print on demand, which means that, that the printer, which is lightning source, it's in Tennessee. And I'm really proud to say that everything's printed in the U S. Um, and if you look, I mean, so many books are printed in China. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just, it happens because it's, it's, more expensive to print here, but you know, to me worth it. But the printer is their parent company is Ingram, which is one of the largest distributors. And most booksellers have a contract with Ingram. So they get a catalog and they choose what books they want. And, um, but sometimes I, I guess in the case of this, of this one, um, children's book from a few years ago, I didn't price it high enough Mm. because I wanted to be competitive, you know, with an Amazon takes 50, 50% of, yeah. And so it's really difficult to make, um, you know, that's one thing that I, that I definitely have a lot to say about is that where, people purchase their books really matters. That was my next question. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, it's a fine line because I don't want to, you want to encourage people to purchase books, no matter how they purchase them. And when you're talking about, you know, Random House, Penguin, I mean, these huge publishing companies, honestly, it's all about volume and they Mm -hmm. just, you know, volume, volume. But when you're smaller, Amazon, this is very twisted. I saw this situation happen one time. So, um, so we have a book about Arkansas rescue dogs by Grace Vest. And so it is, I believe, $24.95. So if Amazon gets the book at 50% off, then they can set whatever price they want. 
I saw it happen where the book was $7 and change on Amazon, which is less than the cost of printing the book. Wow. So I don't know how that happened. And I, um, the printer doesn't seem to be able to, you know, explain why, except to say that they can buy how many ever they want and they can set it at whatever price. And you can't choose, um, I want it to go to booksellers, uh, you know, independent booksellers, but not to, on Amazon. You can't, you know, oh, make that decision. The printer decides. So, so it's either yes, I want it distributed, or no, I don't want it distributed. So it's all or nothing. And then you would have to do your own distribution. Mm-hmm. Which is, I would imagine, a whole five jobs in itself. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have the exposure. I mean, right. let's face it, like, you know, people buy books on Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's how people buy books. Mm-hmm. And so, but I would, um, I would encourage those who are interested in helping the sustainability of any small press, not, you know, not just at Alia, but any small press um, to buy direct from the publisher because it has such a ripple effect. So when the publisher makes more money, first of all, they can stay in business and they can continue to do what they do. So if you like the mission, you like the books that they publish and the types of projects that they um, are doing, then you're supporting that more. Mm -hmm. So instead of the discount of of 50%, you are giving them all those extra dollars. Um, Then the press is able to say yes to other projects that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise because they don't have, you know, the the extra money is is not there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that also in some cases, you know, I won't say forces, but kind of basically forces uh, a press to say to an author, to an author, yes, I love your book, I believe in your project, but unfortunately, I can't finance it. So if you could pay, you know, the thousand dollars of layout costs, then I can say yes to your book. And so writers get really. Um, distressed and and that's difficult on them because writing a book is a huge endeavor. I mean, mm-hmm. it takes a big chunk of, of time and it takes, you have to put a lot of other things in your life aside and, um, you know, it just uh, is difficult to then have to say to an author, I'm sorry, you know, but I'll, you know, if you want to financially partner in this, then we can do it, but otherwise we can't. So when when a reader decides to purchase directly from a publisher, it really does, you know, at least for smaller publishers, it really makes a huge difference in mm-hmm. the whole ecosystem. And um, obviously buying from local booksellers. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. What has the ability to self-publish done to the industry? Is that, is it just sort of a... Is it, is it good, bad, indifferent? I mean, I think it's I, I think it's great as as a writer. I think it's great. Um, I think to tell someone that they don't have to wait for a year to hear back from a publisher that they can um, if if they've been rejected by. 40 publishers, they don't have to just put that book on the shelf and let it gather dust. They can still publish it and to, in, in some cases, be successful. Um, I think it takes 
a lot more work on their part, but it takes a lot of work to sell a book, even if you have a publisher. I mean, I think that's one thing that people don't understand or expect that, um, you know, they say a book success is 10% the writing and 90% the marketing. Mm -hmm. And so really when a book is published, a writer's work has just begun because they're going to have to, you know, Hustle. Start beating the start beating the doors um, and just yeah really hustle. So, but I, I you know I think it's great. At the same time, I guess the drawbacks would be that some people don't understand or maybe just don't want to invest in the editing process and that can make a huge difference Mm -hmm. i mean no one wants to read a book that is difficult to read because it's not organized properly or you know kind of at a lower level that it's um the grammar is is not you know, mm-hmm. correct and and that kind of thing, but but the editing process is not just about getting the sentence structure right. It's also about does something that appear appears at the beginning of the book is it repeated? You know, is it are things flowing and, and is it is it organizationally sound? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people don't become impatient and they don't want to deal with that or they don't want to pay an editor to help them. So there's, I feel like that's maybe why self-publishing has gotten a bad name because people just push it out when Mm -hmm. it's not really in the best condition that it could be in. Yeah. I mean, I've read, I've read books by people I know who self-published and just cringed Mm -hmm. because I, I may have liked the idea of the story, but it was too forced or they were trying to speak in a voice that they weren't getting, you know, and Mm -hmm. it was just like, you know, I want to be supportive. But at the same time, it's like, God, you know, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's like, you're putting something out there. (laughs) Don't you want it to be the best it can be, you know, at least at the moment. Yeah. And um, so, but I mean, at the same time, you know, good on you for Mm -hmm. getting out there and and doing it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I also think, I mean, so for my first book, which um, came out in 2015, Scars and Anthology, uh, so that had 40 contributors on Scars of the Body. So I was editing contributions of other of other people, but it was published by Ed Alia. And then now Women Make Arkansas, um, published by Ed Alia as well. And so... So I am kind of, you know, publishing myself in a way. And so I understand from a writer's perspective, you know, I didn't, I wanted to do both of these books exactly the way that I wanted to do them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want, I didn't want to take to wait that long time that it usually takes to go with a bigger publisher. And so I didn't try. I mean, I think with my, there'll be other books that I feel like, okay, this one is, you know, this is the one that I, that I try. I have a huge crush on Chronicle books. Um, They're out of San Francisco and their books are just amazing. So, you know, that's my, that's my big, uh, pie in the sky someday to um, publish something with them. But, but I get that urge to, 
you know, in that independence to want to do it your way and not want to wait on anyone else. Like in Women Make Arkansas, is probably I'm not I'm not trained as a journalist, and so certain conventions that you know, if I if I were with another publisher, they might say, well, you can't really insert yourself into these interviews in this way. Um, it needs to be about the you know the subject of the interview. So take yourself out. And so I just, I don't have to deal with that because mm-hmm. I can do it the way that I want to mm-hmm. do it. And I, and I love that. Um, and that's why I wanted to, you know, this was more conversations like you do your podcast. I mean, there's, there's a lot of you in it. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not just a, a bio about, about the person that you're interviewing. It's, it's very much a conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you have published two of your own books. Is that what you're saying? So mm-hmm. scars and then the women make, mm-hmm. um, I have to start wrapping this up a little bit because I'm going to keep you for hours if I could. So I guess I'm going to ask two things. Kind of what advice would you give aspiring authors? And then how do you choose your projects? Mm -hmm. So I would say uh, for authors, just make sure that your idea is fully envisioned. If you're submitting to a publishing company, make sure that you thoroughly read everything that they're doing. I mean, I can't tell you how many I, I have it on the submissions page that it's there's a nonfiction focus. I'm unlikely at this time to publish a novel or a poetry collection. And I can't tell you how many of I mean, it's like one a week that I get either someone's novel or or their poetry collection. Um, and so I think just thoroughly read those guidelines and then be sure that your work is in as polished a condition as it can be because that's one of the big considerations is how much of my time is this going to take me as an editor to get it to the point that it needs to be um, to be published because that's costly just in terms of of woman hours um, and everything that you're going to have to put into it. Um, And then I would say also build your community. Go and support other authors that are writing in your genre or in any, you know, just support writers. Um, If you can't or don't want to always buy their books, go to their events and share things on your social media streams. And then when it comes time, as you build those authentic connections, ideally they'll be there to support you Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And so I think many writers are, myself included, are definitely introverts. And so we like to think that we can write and we can publish and then we can just kind of continue to be inside our houses on our computers and not really have to get out there. And so sometimes it it takes a lot of it, it takes practice and and bravery to to get out there, but just go for it because you know there's this writers conference that I go to every year and it has more than twelve thousand people there. Wow, twelve thousand writers, and that'll make you feel like you might not make it, yes. <laughs> you know. Um, but 
everyone is a little socially awkward mm-hmm. and you can just see it, it, it's comforting to be in a room of writers because a lot a lot of people are introverts and so you just kind of make it work mm-hmm. in their um, moments but you just work through it so I would definitely say just get out there reach out connect um, interact your relationship with your editor, I would think, is really important. It's almost like a, a it's a relationship. It's like a marriage almost, I would mm-hmm. I would assume. Um, how do you go about finding potential editors? And then how do you kind of interview them to figure out if you might be a good match? Yeah, I think that unfortunately I see a lot of people, a lot of writers who end up, they've hired someone and it's not gone as planned, either for personal reasons or technical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me really sad to see that someone's sometimes paid a lot of money and their manuscript is in like really rough shape. Mm-hmm. And I think good ways to avoid that are if you can meet in person, if you can't meet in person, you know, talk over the phone for a while and ask, ask about their experience, ask what they do when things don't go well, or, you know, have you had a writer that things didn't go well with? How did you do that? I mean, you're interview, you're interviewing them. Mm -hmm. You're basically hiring, hiring them. So, um, So definitely interview them. Most editors, I don't think about this, but do most books say who edited? I guess in the acknowledgments, they'll do that. Yeah, a lot of times they do. So Um, you can can look at their kind of body of work mm -hmm. and see, I mean, do you want someone who edits, let's say writing a romance novel? I mean, you want someone who just does that. I mean, you don't want them, you don't want a technical writer necessarily. Right, and you don't want, a lot of times my strength is nonfiction. And Mm -hmm. so I I have edited novels, but I don't, I really try to say, you know, this is not what I, in in fact, I don't, I don't do it anymore. But at one point I would do it because I was just like, I I could take the money, you know, I just, I I need the money. Um, But I would try to tell them or discourage them, you know, and they're like, well, I want to just go through with it anyway. So, you know, so that's fine. But I think it's much better if you have someone who is trained in fiction I mean why would you not want someone trained in the thing Mm -hmm. you know you're not going to go to the podiatrist to help you with your eye right so why you know why do that with your with your writing and some people have the idea that all editors are are the same or Mm -hmm. would give the same feedback and that's just not true at all i mean what the direction that one editor is going to take it in is not the direction that another editor would take it in Mm -hmm. necessarily so i think you just have to part of it is trusting your gut and really asking do i like this person do i really feel like i can work well with this person are Mm -hmm. there any red flags that i'm seeing and then get recommendations ask them for two or you know would you mind if i reached out to two or three writers that you'd worked with and see what they say and really do reach out to them and and check with them and see what their experiences were and ask if there were any rough spots and how those were dealt with because it is a relationship of 
deep trust Mm -hmm. because sometimes, especially when it comes to memoir, which is what I really love to edit. I mean, you're getting in um, one of the at Alia books is Can Everybody Swim? And it's about the author lived in the Superdome the week after Katrina. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, this is the only memoir written by a New Orleans resident about living in the Superdome the week after Katrina. There's one that was written by a journalist who happened to be in New Orleans, but he was from California. Um, And of course, there are a lot of memoirs about Katrina, but not that glimpse inside the Superdome. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was for the author, one of the most difficult, challenging, horrible periods of his life. He was there with his mother. She was extremely sick. She was having seizures. There was no medical help. You know, of course, all of the things that we know that were going on in the Superdome, violence, I mean, it it just went on and on. And so for him to return to those traumatic scenes of his life, you know, you have to be careful. You have to be sensitive and not push someone too far. Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of know when to just let things go. And, and or, you know, on the other hand, when to push the writer because they're not giving their best writing. And mm-hmm. so that's all kind of and I'm certainly not saying that I do that right every every time. And, and I don't think that you can. But my point is that when you're doing that kind of deep personal writing and you're working with someone on that kind of writing that you do have to be you have to be sure that as a writer that you're you feel like you're in good hands mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so it sounds like finding a therapist <laughs> which is a hard thing I to wouldn't do. be a very good therapist that's for sure but um but yes that is yeah. that is hard yeah. yeah I would be a terrible therapist but I love therapy mm-hmm. um well so let's talk about your uh most recent book Women Make Arkansas. So tell me about the the birth of the idea and how this all came together. Yeah, so I do uh, some food writing for a specialty food store that's in Hot Springs and um, Saratoga Springs, New York. And through that, I have interviewed food producers um, across the country, I guess, and also internationally. And I just really love, I've always loved bios. I've always loved seeing how and why people end up where they end up. So I wanted to do a book that was maybe about food producers. And then I decided I wanted it to be focused on Arkansas. And then I decided that I wanted it to be creatives in Arkansas because I have so many conversations with creative friends about how do you, especially if you're doing numerous things, how do you sustain your creative life when you're trying to do all of these other things Or if you have it as your career, how do you not get burned out on it? How do you continue to flourish even though you're focusing on it as your career? And how do you keep that spark going? And in thinking about that, I thought, well, you know, it'd be really interesting to talk to Arkansas makers about 
how they are able to do that. So not only about what their craft is, but about creativity in general and about what creativity means in their life. So I went out to dinner with a friend and she is my best brainstorming buddy. I mean, just someone that will sit there and get really meticulous with you and go through your idea. And I think, you know, we kind of do that for each other. And I have a lot of ideas. I mean, I much like you, I have, I have tons of ideas. So it's, it's, honing what is it that I really need to focus on what's going to be the most fruitful what's going to be what's got the most promise and you know narrowing down those things so so she really helps me do that and so I was out at dinner with her and I told her you know about a couple of book ideas and then I was like oh yeah I was kind of thinking about this you know makers of Arkansas and then it just kind of hit me through our conversation that I really was feeling a yearning in my life to learn from more women and not, you know, I I do learn a lot from my friends, but I just wanted to speak to more creative women doing all kinds of different crafts. And I just was really seeking the guidance and counsel of women. I don't know if that's just this, you know, being 41. I don't know if that's, you know, being a mother and a daughter and kind of thinking about those relationships or if that's, you know, what exactly came together in my life. But I just have really found, I I really found myself craving to learn from more women. So, you know, that kind of all came together, I guess. And I thought, yeah, this should be women makers. This Mm -hmm. should really be about women makers. So you think of the idea and then it's like, okay, now I need to put something on a website or something. So it'll force me to actually do this. And so I asked Anita Davis, who's the founder of SE Museum and Store. And she said, yes. And not only did she say, yes, she was super excited about it and just thought it was a fantastic idea. So that made me a little more brave. So I then asked someone who I'd never met, but have seen and read about and follow on Instagram. And that's Linda Rowe Thomas, who's a fashion designer um, here in Little Rock. And she said yes. And she was so excited. So then I just... my confidence just really grew. So I just started asking more people and I put up nominations and, you know, shared about it on Facebook and um, set up a nomination deadline and nominations started rolling in. And so through a combination of nominations and um, just kind of word of mouth and, and meeting people, um, the the 50 came together really quickly. I was originally thinking it would be like 25, but there's just no, I mean, it yeah. could be, it could definitely be volumes because we've mm-hmm. just got so many women in our state doing incredible things. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, well, and I know a few just flipping through this. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I can't wait to. Is there um, any takeaways or kind of themes throughout their stories, anything 
that you want to talk about that you discovered in this project? So Don Holder is a ceramicist who has won the Delta Award for from the Arkansas Arts Center for her ceramic grass, porcelain grass, I guess. Um, and she's made over a hundred thousand blades of this porcelain grass and it's it's pretty incredible and she does a lot of other things too but that's kind of what she is known for but she talks about something that i think was a a a common theme in the way that many women talked about overcoming creative barriers to get really comfortable with the process and to just keep going through it over and over again so that you realize that there's the idea, there's the excitement of something new, then there's the hard work, then there's the honing, then, you know, there's the revision, there's the before you get to this, you know, final thing, and that you can't take it personally when you're deep, deep, deep in the frustration. And that the progression of a creative life is trying to narrow the gap between the thing that you see or imagine in your mind and the thing that you can make with your hands. Mm -hmm. And that's where the practice and the skill and the, and the just daily toil doing it over and over and over again so that you can narrow that gap. And I see that a lot with our daughter is, does a lot of art and, and she'll get really frustrated because she has a mental picture and then you know the hand isn't coming out like she has it in in her mind and so um, I think the more that you work through that frustration and try to just improve your skill and just not just know that that is the beauty of where you're going the Mm -hmm. frustration is a natural part of of the whole thing Mm and, and so I think that was that was definitely uh, the case with a lot of the women. I can relate to that. One of my problems is is that I don't stick with anything long enough to be become proficient or an expert in anything. I love photography. It's my favorite medium. And I understand that frustration because I can see what I want to photograph, but I can't make it look the way I want it to. And I'm just talking about just like, you know, when Jason and I are on bike rides on the river trail, every time we go, it's like, I've never seen it before. It's just always so beautiful to me. And I often want to stop and take pictures of everything. And there's this one image of the I-40 bridge, but it's just the perspective, the line of it. Mm -hmm. And I just can't make it work. And I know that if I tried and I really kind of studied it, I would get it, but I'm but I don't, I don't do that, you know, or even in Colorado, just trying to capture what, what I'm seeing. And so, um, but I'm just not, I think that's why I love people who are good at what they do, no matter what it is, because I never really take the time to do that. You know, I'm the jack of all trades, master of none, uh, because I want to do everything, all the things, yeah. you know, but I've, I'm af- I don't know if I'm afraid to like spend too much time on one thing, then that keeps me from doing something else. So yeah, I feel like we're very, very similar in that way. And yeah. it's easy to get really hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I've definitely had that self speak, like, what are you doing? You left practicing law to write. Now you're 
editing and doing everyone else's projects. I mean, I, I've definitely been there, been there before. Like you're a generalist, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just have thought that a lot in my mind. Um, and that it's, it's just so easy to become excited about, about many different things. But, you know, I think when you find something a word that has meant a lot to me lately is radiance. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly how that word came to me, but sometimes words just come to me, even I'll wake up in the middle of the night and a word will pop in my head. And I'm like, okay, I think I know what radiance means, but I'm not sure exactly what that means. So let me look it up, you know, mm-hmm. back to our thesaurus of earlier. Um, and when I looked up radiance, it meant that it's light being sent out from a center, but also received into a center. So it's like this light going in two mm-hmm. directions. And when I completed this project, it was like, I felt that. I, f- I felt that this was my thing. This was something that I was supposed to complete. This Mm -hmm. is something that I was really supposed to do. And I don't remember ever feeling that way before. I just remember always being hard on myself that I wasn't sticking with something long enough. Mm -hmm. But now that I've felt it, I want to feel it again, you know? And so I don't know, maybe, maybe that radiant thing is is just waiting for yeah. you. Okay. Well, that that gives me encouragement because I'm 48. <laughs> I would like to be good at something before I die. But you are. You're good at, I mean, think about it. You're good at starting businesses. I mean, how many people know how to do that or would even have the courage to do that? Yeah. I mean, you're good at bring it, you know, you have Airbnb apartments upstairs. You're very inventive by how you bring things together to make your life work. I mean, mm-hmm. that's true. You're doing it. Yeah. You're doing a podcast. I mean, how many people, <laughs> you know, a lot of people think about or have ideas for podcasts, but you've done what it, the like 25 episodes, yeah. 24 episodes. Yeah. I mean, that's, you didn't do five and give up. You're really good at doing your podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, um, thank you for saying that. Uh, I, one of the reasons I really wanted to do this is because I love talking to people like you and hearing stories and connecting with people and women are so extraordinary. Men are certainly wonderful too. And I love them, but I think women are really extraordinary beings for so many reasons that we don't have time to get into. But And so uh, I just want to be able to share these conversations and give other people a chance to meet you, right, and hear what you're doing and relate to challenges you've had or that I've had so that we don't all feel alone in our challenges, you know. And so it's really fun to be able to do this and share it. Yeah. It's like your books. I mean, like, does it feel like you're sort of, um, I don't know, what does it feel like to to publish these books? Well, and, you know, this one in particular, I think what you you hit on is sharing challenges and these women were so brave and they've talked about all kinds of really I mean this isn't just about not that it wouldn't be enough to just be about 
you know, painting or um, performing or um, or any of, of the things that these women do, but they have been able to go deeper into these into these things because of the really difficult circumstances of their lives. Mm -hmm. Like one of the artists, um, Gay Bechtelheimer, talked about losing her son and um, that made her art much more urgent, that loss. I mean, I think when you have a loss like that, you could go in the other direction. Mm -hmm. You could completely shut yourself off from your creativity. But for her, she went deeper into it. There's uh, one woman shares about a rape. Another woman shared publicly about her divorce for the first time that she, you know, had done anything aside from talking to friends and family. These are things that really take a lot to to share in a in a printed Mm-hmm. form when you don't know who's going to read it. And it's one thing when you're a writer, because you, you know, make certain decisions about how much you want to share. Um, and I guess they did, they did too. But I think it's only by sharing those, those tough times and those challenges that you can really connect with someone mm-hmm. and really learn to them, learn from them because otherwise you're just looking at one part of the story right. and it's not very rich. You're right. only looking at the results, the, the painting you see on the wall. Um, you're not really understanding everything that, well, not that these interviews are by any means everything that there is mm-hmm. to any of these women's lives, but, um, you know, for those that, that really shared, a lot about their their personal lives, which many of them did. I think there's just so much to be learned from them. And, you know, if I'm having a hard time or feeling a little sorry for myself or wanting to have a bit of a pity party, it's really nice to turn to one of the profiles and just kind of see which mm-hmm. one um, opens and read each woman has um, a quote and then at the end of her profile she gives advice and um it's really nice to just go through the book and read a little bit of advice and just kind of get myself back together and Mm -hmm. you know have a if if she's done it I can do it too moment um and there are a lot of those packed in there and I I'm just really thankful to all all of these women for giving me a tremendous learning experience. Yeah. I think that also you talk about the layers, um, and the, um, how much more there is to people than what we think we know or what we see or what they show us. And that goes back to, uh, to me, our conversation about compassion, having compassion for others and like trying to understand let's say it's a parent, you know, well, why are they like this? Why did they treat me this way? And kind of stepping outside of your own experience with that person and think, well, maybe their childhood, what was it about their childhood or some experiences they have had, you know, like what makes us who we are? And it's so many different things and it's constantly changing. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I'm so different now than I was even probably five years ago. And anyway, but that's what I, I love about these books and, and also scars. I love to be able to look inside of people and, and see what they've been through and how they deal with it and, um, you know, kind of where they are now and, and where they might be going. So anyway, it's, it's fascinating. And the cover is beautiful. I love it. I, 
Oh, I can't wait to post this. Yeah, this is one of the one of those moments where I mean, I just think when you find the right collaborator, yeah. whether that's writer editor for me, you know, finding Amy, um, who's an incredible graphic designer, I can say something like, "Okay, take." some of the women's art and make it in the shape of Arkansas. And, you know, we go through a lot of iterations, but this is where we ended mm-hmm. up. And it's um, to connect with someone who can graphically express my messy verbal description mm-hmm. of what I would love to see graphically. It, it's just, it's amazing to see something pop out and be like, yes, that's, that's what it. I that's yes. what I was thinking of. Yeah. So uh, it's very bonding. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it's beautiful. And you have got, I'm looking at your website now. It's at aliapress.com. And I'll put links in the show notes about all of this. Oh, you have next up projects too. Yeah, and in fact, um, there are two projects that I want to add to that. So one, um, the submissions process is closed and everyone has been notified for closet cases, queers on what we wear. And that's by an Atlanta author. And she, uh, it will have a strong connection to Arkansas though, because several of the people who will be featured in it are from here. So it's going to be 75 different photographs and discussions of particular clothing items. Also really excited about doing a cookbook with Arshia Khan. She is the photography editor of Arkansas Life magazine mm-hmm. and her food f- photography is pretty iconic. It's, it just has some essential part of her and when you see one of her photographs you just know that it's Arshia's and she is the first person to, she took my current headshot which I hadn't gotten one in five years because I hate having my picture taken so much and she's the first person to really make me feel comfortable in front of a camera and um, you know just ask me well how do you feel most comfortable what part you know Mm -hmm. of your body do you want to share or not want to share and that just like changed you know no one had ever asked me that Mm -hmm. and she's just a, a wonderful person I'm so excited to work with her and then also Uh, Another project is with Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, Mm -hmm. and she's doing the, um, she's spearheading, uh, along with Stephanie Matthews, the um, Save 10 movement, Mm -hmm. encouraging women to save 10% for retirement. So her book is... um, I guess kind of exposing the finance industry and explaining how women have been kind of shut out of that and Mm she hopes to to change that and to talk to women about that we need to be engaging in conversations about money mm-hmm. and that we have traditionally been afraid to do that and so um so her book is uh really going to be a great experience as well she's on my list i want to i've heard her speak once and yeah. and i want to 
I want to talk to her for sure. Yeah, yeah. she's a great a great speaker. So yeah. so smart and just um, explains things in a way that is completely understandable. Mm-hmm. And she's really funny too. So that yeah. makes it a lot, yeah. really nice. <laughs> I have so many ideas for you. Uh, anyway, so you talked about Arshia mm-hmm. uh, making you feel comfortable, and uh, you know, as I get older. I am horrified about the aging process and how I look. And, and so I, I think it would be interesting to get women their trouble spots or whatever they're insecure about mm-hmm. and then show them how that's beautiful. Does, does yeah. that make sense? Like, Oh, absolutely. Cool in fact, project. one of the, one of the women, um, in the book, Crystal Cornelia, she makes, cameos and well she makes jewelry and she's also a burlesque dancer Mm. and so we talked about that in our conversation and that's exactly what burlesque did for her it just completely transformed the way she felt about herself because I think so many of us you know we're always trying to get somewhere we're not there's not ever an acceptance of where we are how we are and Burlesque really helped her to get past that mm-hmm. and and to come to a place of not only self acceptance but thinking of herself as beautiful mm-hmm. and that's a struggle I think for for a lot of women yeah it is for me for sure so paying a photographer and coordinating with a photographer to do the photography for this book, which just seemed really overwhelming to me. So I decided amateur as I am that I would take all of the pictures myself. And that was, it was really, I mean, I guess I'm used to being behind the camera for my family members, but not really um, people that I'm just meeting. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, that was a, an interesting experience. And some of the women, I mean, there's just such a range. Some women women would say, pick whichever one you want. I trust your judgment. I don't care. I don't even want to see it. Personally, I cannot imagine being that way because I want absolute control yeah. over whatever, you know, image is chosen. And then other women were like, oh, you know, could you please Photoshop out my eye wrinkles and, you know, my smile lines or, mm-hmm. or whatever, which I completely understood too. Right. And it was... It was just curious to see. I just, I just didn't expect um, that that range mm-hmm. of what people were comfortable with, not comfortable with, um, and so that was part of the learning process and kind of a new role for me as well. Yeah, whenever I'm feeling insecure about it or down or whatever it is, uh, you know, I just think this is actually what you look like. <laughs> this is how people see you. So stop it. It doesn't matter, you know, and as long as you're healthy and, you know, so I try to like turn it around, but it still is hard. I mean, just with our culture, you know, the way there's so much focus on youth and beauty and, and all of those things. And, uh, you know, anyway, yeah, no, it, and the, the idea that there's this thing that's going to get us to this perfect place like there's this product in fact I'm doing my new year's resolution was no bath and body purchases Mm -hmm. so I'm doing that for a year so there are exceptions like I can you know if I get mascara for example I mean if I'm going to use one I don't want it to be a year old Um, not healthy for my eyes Mm -hmm. so you know if I get down to something or it's gone bad I can replace that but um, it's really taught me a lot 
about what a quest I was on to find that thing that was really going to make me not have eye wrinkles or Mm. really, you know, even my skin tone. And they're, they're just, isn't that thing out there. So, you know, it just, um, and, and we'll do so much to get it because they're just constant messages that we, that we have to be doing that. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've definitely learned a lot in putting the pause button and just using samples that I already had Mm -hmm. and, you know, using the stuff that's already in my cabinet. So, yeah. And, you know, we don't put that pressure on other people. It's only ourselves, right? So, like, I don't Mm -hmm. look at another woman and think, wow, look at those eye wrinkles, which I don't even see any on you, but, (laughs) um, you know, or my husband, you know, I don't think, wow, he's getting old, you know? I mean, I do, we talk about it, we joke about it because we're so creaky and, you know, stiff all the time. We're like, oh my God, we're old, what's happened? But I don't, it's only me I put that pressure on, Mm -hmm. uh, you know? Oh, so much to fix in the world. Um, Another thing, and and this will be the last thing because I know I I need to let you go, but I have seen some friends write or speak so eloquently about depression, um, parenthood, different things that we don't normally talk about publicly. And I tend to put everything out there. I mean, not like everything's on Facebook, but like I'm, I try to be really honest about mm-hmm. my my experiences um, because I think it helps each other. And so I'm not saying I want to have this depressing book, but I mean, I do think it'd be interesting if someone would take some of that and put it together and just, you know, I don't know why, but I find it comforting to read other people's experiences. Like my friend, um, I have a friend who had postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and like, we had no idea, you know, what she was going through. And I think just, we would all be so much healthier if we would talk about these things. And we put such high expectations on mothers to be the perfect mothers, Mm -hmm. because that's what we're supposed to do. And I think that is so unhealthy. You know, I know you've had personal experiences and, you know, I have an aunt who's lost two of her three kids and, or, you know, I was a shitty teenager, you know, I mean, like it's hard, life is hard. And I, I don't like seeing everything through the Facebook or Instagram lens. Mm -hmm. I like the realness of our experiences. Yeah. And I think though, you know, to me, a lot of that comes down to shame. Yes. And I've thought about doing an anthology about shame Mm -hmm. in its many, many forms, Mm -hmm. but that, you know, and of course shame is related to fear and Mm -hmm. fear of your perception. If you're not the perfect mother, if Mm -hmm. you've, if you actually are really having a hard time with this, um, then that's, that's not meeting with other people's expectations. But I think it is so important to, you know, there are people in my life who call themselves, you know, private people. And I, I understand that, but I, I just, I guess like you, to me, that that connection that you don't get, you know, back to the radiance. I mean, you if you don't put that out there, you're not able to get it back. Yeah. And you need that connection. And you're going when when you share your story, other people are going to share their stories with you and they may not be exactly the same, but they're going to make you feel better. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't share, you know, you're not able to get get the benefit of I, I don't think maybe get all the benefit of what it really means to be human. Yes. And shame is a very lonely place. You know, and so when I posted recently about my sister dying, I mean, that was a really weird Mm -hmm. situation, you know, because I hadn't talked to her for so long and and she had kind of been dead to me for years because of her alcoholism. And I do not like for people 
I don't like that kind of attention. Like even just talking about it right now makes me uncomfortable because I, I know people feel badly about it and they want to help me in some way, but I tend to kind of just like, leave me alone. I want to be by myself because there's nothing you can say that will make me feel better. But you know, that's what we do. We try to comfort each other. And so, but at the same time, there is a lot of shame wrapped around addiction, Mm -hmm. even if you're not the one who's addicted. So I don't, I, I felt uncomfortable not saying something and not being honest about mm-hmm. it. I hadn't, I didn't tell my closest friends that she had died, you know? And so, and then, you know, some of the responses and people who messaged me privately, I, it confirmed that it was the right decision to do mm-hmm. because I know, I know it gave other people comfort mm-hmm. or like when Colin told me, remember her, how she was mm-hmm. before the addiction, you know, that was truly like the first time I was like, I allowed myself to grieve her yeah. because I was like, Oh yeah, there was this other beautiful human being mm-hmm. before this disease ravaged her, mm-hmm. you know? And so life is hard enough without us making it harder on ourselves. Yeah. I say this after all of the things that I've already admitted that I make harder on myself, but, um, so yeah, I love, it feels weird saying this, but I would, that would be a great, something on shame, I think yeah. would be really important. Yeah. You know? And and I think that to have, obviously I love anthologies. I love putting them together and um, I also love reading them because it just allows so many perspectives on a subject mm-hmm. that you can really, you can really learn so much more than just a single author expressing their, you know, their opinion, sharing their life, sharing their research. And of course that's very valuable too, but, um, but I just think there's something about the idea that you're in the room, the room of the book with all of these different voices, mm-hmm. having all of these different life experiences related to this one thing is, is incredibly informative. Mm-hmm. I also like that it's kind of bite-sized, mm-hmm. right? Cause I, I do not read as much as I used to and that I should. And so I love anthologies too, or even mm-hmm. a poem or something where you can kind of get through a chapter yeah. and then go back to it. And you can check it, <laughs> you know, yeah. give it a little yeah. check before you go to bed or right. something. And, yeah. And you don't need to read true. all of them. Mm-hmm for the complete book. Does that yeah. mean, you know, like yes. a story, like a, mm-hmm. a fiction or uh, even a nonfiction book, mm-hmm. you know, biography or something. Mm-hmm. So um, I've got to let you go. Thank you. Thank you so much. I Stephanie, could talk to you all day. Oh, I really appreciate your having me on Uppity Women. Oh my I God. guess now I'm an Uppity Woman. Yes, you are. So happy to be one. You have been. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, no, I've always been drawn to you and admired you from the moment Priscilla introduced us. You know, I, I don't know. I just think you're a special person and um, it's, you know, it's it's an honor to know you. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it's it. It's great to be in your presence all right. always. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I'm going to get in trouble if I do not ask you to subscribe to the podcast, share it with friends, rate us and review us. It is not hard to do. Uh, Of course, we prefer five stars, but do whatever you feel is right. And the more support you provide, the more we can keep on going. Thank you.